0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 28, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein.
2: Welcome to episode 350.
1: 350,
2: <laughs> that's right. Tree
1: Hooray! A round number. Yeah, yeah arbitrarily yeah. round number. Does that mean I can retire now? If you want, Jay, you can retire whenever you want, man. No, i will go another no. three hundred. Okay, let's go
2: three, tree 50. All right.
1: And we're coming up on our
2: seven-year anniversary. A couple <sighs> months. Holy uh. crap! I got to look up what to get you guys this year. Guess what? Today is um, it's not your
3: birthday.
4: Jay is right. It is not my birthday. It's your unbirthday. Nope. On uh, this date in nineteen eighty-one, March thirty-first. Indian American microbiologist Ananda Mohan Chakrabarty received the first ever patent for a living organism cool it was me no <laughs> just kidding that, that explains all <laughs> that. that was right I after know. I was born though and that would have been that would have been epic uh, no a new he, he created a new species of oil eating bacteria called pseudom- pseudomonas pseudomonas
1: pseudomonas
4: I'm gonna say pseudomonas pseudomonas because this sounds better <laughs> Mm. putida which sounds filthy which turns oil into simpler substances that can be eaten by aquatic life he genetically engineered it because there are already four species of existing oil metabolizers but they apparently competed with with each other for the oil so he made this new species that consumed oil an order of magnitude faster than the others and it was very, a very interesting case because initially when he applied for the patent, it was denied. And then he appealed and the U.S. Court of Customs and Patent Appeals overturned it. And then it went to the Supreme Court. And in March, March 17th, 1980, the Supreme Court case was argued. June 16th, 1980, the Supreme Court decided five to four in favor of Chakrabarty. And so in March 31st of the following year, the patent was issued. And that paved the way for other genetically engineered microorganisms and other things to be patented.
1: Yeah, the issue is whether or not you could patent a living organism. And uh, yeah, he won that. That was a landmark case. Interestingly, how he uh, made the organism was through plasmid transfer. There are examples in all of the domains, but bacteria especially can have part of their genetic information bound in these small, circular, usually transferable units called plasmids that's how you know bacteria can exchange genetic information with each other they can transfer antibiotic resistance for example so we took uh the the oil eating genes from four different plasmids and he found a way to to make a stable new plasmid thereby creating this new super oil eating bug pseudomonas putida and uh, it, there's it is related to a lot of other species that do lots of neat things you know breaking down uh t- not just not just oil but also uh, toxic chemicals, insecticides. It really can clean up, you know, the, the soil with all, all kinds of nasty chemicals in it. Some of them, however, can or can be human pathogens. So most of those are banned. You know, you can't really use those. The pseudomonas putita, however, is not. It's a safe bacteria. So this is actually a uh, really useful one. Well, oh, where the hell, where
4: the hell were they last year? I mean, what's going on? That was so long ago. What What the hell? Well, they just don't work fast enough, I guess. They're not as efficient as uh, enough to take care of our large-scale disasters.
1: Well, the use of bacteria in the Deepwater Horizon spill is complicated, actually. First of all, there's a lot of different chemicals in crude oil were released from that spill. A lot of different types of molecules, and bacteria could eat some better than others. It's still controversial what impact bacteria had on biodegrading the oil spill. And also there's concerns that bacterial overgrowth in the Gulf can cause problems, health problems for people living on the coast, perhaps even depletion of oxygen in the waters uh, and other you know, environmental effects. So they're, they're not a magic bullet.
2: We need to develop an organism that'll eat up carbon emissions. Wouldn't that be handy?
1: Yeah, they're called trees.
2: <laughs> <laughs> More trees. <Zing. laughs> we need what? Eight times as many trees? Ten, twelve?
1: Well, it's also uh, just phytoplankton. Just a matter of how much of it we have. Yeah. I think that there was, speaking of things that conveniently
4: eat things for us, um, hmm. there was recently a plastic-eating fungi that was found that, you know, obviously yeah. would help a great deal in terms of the huge amounts of waste we produce. He's a
2: fungi. guy.
1: Down in Tennessee, though, they're not having such a great time. I understand they're having some creationist shenanigans going on. <laughs> Correct. Down
4: there. Correct. They are. Uh, yeah. Last week, I talked about the news of an anti-science bill in New Hampshire, and this week's story is another anti-science bill uh, that's passed through the state senate so far of Tennessee. The crux of it is the creationists are continuing to try to sneak their religion into science classrooms, this time with a bill that would protect the jobs of teachers who would, and I quote, teach the strengths and weaknesses of topics that, I quote, can cause controversy. And these topics include global warming, human cloning, and, of course, our old favorite, evolution. Of course, They are not talking about scientific controversy, because you would have to be pretty ignorant to think that there is any scientific opposition to the theory of evolution. No, what they're actually talking about is their own made-up religious controversy in which they are having trouble marrying a literal interpretation of the Bible with reality. So the really amazing thing is the language they use in this bill to justify themselves. They're actually co-opting our language. Let me read you a part of it. An important purpose of science education is to inform students about scientific evidence and to help students develop critical thinking skills necessary to become intelligent, productive, and scientifically informed citizens. That sounds pretty great, right? We we agree with that. The bill states, though, that when it comes to controversial subjects, and I quote, some teachers may be unsure of the expectations concerning how they should present information on such subjects those subjects being evolution, cloning, and global warming. One of the big issues that's been brought up by opponents of this bill, opponents who include every science education advocacy group ever, pretty much, they rightfully point out that it is the job of state science standards to make sure teachers have the tools they need to present materials, not the job of a bunch of conservative Christian lawmakers who wrongfully think that they're the ones who should be insulted when we point out that they're related to monkeys. So, It's yet another one of those bills that is in the, the wedge strategy of creationists. You know, change up the language a little bit in order to protect teachers who will go ahead and start teaching creationism as a way to teach the weaknesses of evolution. And once they let that through, you know, they'll, they'll keep pushing and pushing and pushing until they've got, uh, creationism recognized as some sort of official topic for science classrooms. Um, so people in Tennessee, please let your representatives know how you feel about this. It, like I said, it's passed the Senate. It's gone to the House now. Passed Um, the House
1: today, passed the House this week. uh,
4: Well, shit. Uh, there's still hope, there's still hope that the governor might go ahead and veto this. Um, he did make some rumblings about how it, this, you know, should be, uh, up to the, the, the science standards, not, not lawmakers. Hey. So,
3: yeah, yeah.
1: It sounds like he's making a legal justification for vetoing it. Not, not a, not because it's the wrong thing to do, or not a scientific justification, but just it's just not in the purview of the legislature to step on the uh, the board of education. It's their job to do this. So they, they, he, but that may just be a way of po- a politically acceptable way for him to veto a bill he knows is bad. It's also a bad bill, even again, the science aside, uh, a lot of people are critical of it because this, the only net effect of this bill is to, is to create million-dollar lawsuits on the back of the taxpayers. This is just wasting Tennessee taxpayers' money because it's, it's going to generate lawsuits that they're going to lose because we already have enough precedents to know, th- you know how, th- how the higher courts are going to rule in cases like this. And it's utterly transparent. You know what they're what they're trying to do here, but uh, but you got to love the the long term strategy here. They make this fake controversy over evolution, and then they say, "Oh, and because we made it controversial, controversial, now we have to you know pass laws to water teach down the his teaching. Yeah, to teach the controversy essentially. But really, what the the sweet spot goal of this bill is to provide cover for teachers to teach creationism in the public school, so that the hope is more science teachers who are creationists will um, have the courage to do just that, to to present creationist arguments without worrying about being fired because they'll say, hey, I'm protected by this bill. I'm just doing what it mandates to to present the the strengths and weaknesses of evolution.
3: It's our role as critical thinkers in the community to point out these things because you you could just imagine how this would go right over the heads of our politicians and never find that this – or discover this on their own, right, Steve?
1: I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on how savvy the politician is. But, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, the fact that there is a skeptical community, and specifically like the National Center for Science Education and Jeannie Scott, who keeps an eye on these things, you know, we have to be right there saying, nope, this is what this bill is all about. It's, this is a stealth creationism bill. This is the goal. This is why it's, you know, it's, uh, it's anti-science. This is, you know, all the things that are wrong with it. It certainly... Um, makes it more likely that politicians will get the message. But let's move on. Bob, you're going to tell us or give us an update about the – thinking about the origin of the Earth's moon.
5: Yeah, the moon was in the news again this week. It seems uh, this past year it's been in a bunch of times. So recently scientists seem to have obliterated the most popular moon formation theory by finding new compelling evidence that the moon is not made up of bits of Earth and another planet that hit us four billion years ago. Or cheese, Bob or or cheese yeah they debunked that uh last year Jay <laughs> for years now the prevailing theory of the formation of the moon was the giant impact hypothesis uh, a mars sized planet called uh thea or theia hit us spewing debris from both planets into orbit around the decimated earth Is spew the right word there? I kind of like it. I'm going to go with it. After a century or so, this orbiting debris kind of gravitationally coalesced into the moon, uh, the moon that we know and love. So there was um, little research cast doubt on that scenario. Even a weird oxygen isotope comparison couldn't, uh, couldn't really put a dent in it. Different isotopes of an element like oxygen, for example, have the same number of protons but different numbers of neutrons in its nucleus. Years ago, they compared oxygen isotopes from Earth uh, and those found in moon rocks, and they discovered that the ratio of isotopes were the same. So that means that when they compared the ratio between, say, oxygen 16, 17, and 18, those three different isotopes, they were the same on Earth and the moon. Now, this seems odd, though, because, uh, normally you'd think that since the planet Theia comprised perhaps 40% of the moon, the ratios would be different. And that, that ratio is important because it's kind of like a fingerprint. You know, every planetary body out there has a unique genesis that, uh, mean, they, they formed in very unique circumstances and,
1: so their so the ratios of the various isotopes would be different. So, so Bob, on that point, though, just to, I understand why that's the case, but you could also think, well, everything in the solar system formed from the same cloud of dust and, and gas. What, why would the isotope ratios be so different for one hunk of rock that formed one place in the solar system and another hunk of rock that, that formed someplace else? But um, from, if I'm remembering it correctly, I believe it has to do with the distance from the sun, you know, the, the relative uh, gravitational strengths and et cetera, do actually create this sort of layering out of different isotopes. Right. And and so the exact location in that cloud does affect the isotope ratios, right? Yeah,
5: yeah, that's that that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I mean, you're not going to have a completely uh, homogeneous uh, mixture, uh, you know, in the in yeah. that clouds. And that's and that's pretty much the thinking of why there should be uh, some difference, some some detectable difference, which they which they really didn't find when they compared these oxygen isotopes. But you know, those crafty scientists they explained this away. Um, they explained away this apparent anomaly, saying that it's very possible that Earth's oxygen mixed with the oxygen in the orbiting magma soon after the collision. So nobody really had a problem with that, and uh, and that's fine. That's, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. But now, however, they found another isotope ratio that can't be explained away so easily, and this time it wasn't oxygen but titanium. So they, what they did was they compared uh, titanium-50 with uh, titanium-47, that the ratio between the 50 and the 47 is the same for Earth and the Moon, and this is why essentially the old Earth collision theory, the big impact theory, may now actually be dead. Uh, for oxygen, exchanging is possible, as I, as I just said. There is a, a mechanism that could explain it, but for titanium – um, a similar type of exchange is essentially impossible. And that's pretty much as far as I could tell due to its, its very high boiling point. So this is, is an anomaly that, that really stands out and really is at odds with, the, with the current theory. So then, so how do we then explain that the, the geochemistry of the moon seems identical to Earth? So let's look at a, a few of the, uh, the earlier moon formation theories that, that, uh, used, that was bandied about years ago. But well, the- Bob, before we,
1: I'm not sure I'm ready to get rid of, you know the impact theory here, just okay. with one line of evidence. I mean, is it possible that this is just sampling error, or just you know the the, the idea that this is just too small a sample to make a generalization? You know, you know, from? I
5: th- I thought about that, and I'm I'm just going with the scientists here on this one, thinking that that's such an obvious. Issue that they had to account for it by, you know, by taking moon rocks that were that were gathered at different at different parts of the moon, and uh, yeah, sure, we're, we're going along with the assumption that um, that they believe that that they uh, comprise forty percent of of the moon, and that that could potentially be be incorrect, which would which would impact this. But to me, Steve, yeah, that, but couldn't
1: they have sampled it from one of the sixty percent that's from the Earth?
5: Yeah, I mean, I am sure that's possible, but I thought about it, and that just seemed like that's just too obvious for them to have missed. You know, so I'm like, I'm just kind of going with the, with with the scientists on that one, and yeah. But how
1: do you know how accurately the reporting is reflecting the real consensus of opinion, or they just talk to one guy? And you know what I mean? You, like, we don't know that the reporting that you're talking about is really. Like a consensus of scientific opinion, or is it just some uh, of a narrow opinion that the, the whoever is doing the reporting is presenting as?
5: Well, I mean, I, I read I read some of the ab- abstract, and uh, that seems to be the angle they're they're going for here. And uh, so yeah, so maybe this, maybe it's a little premature, and and they, there won't be a consensus on this. Maybe there's something that they're missing. Sure, that's possible, but uh, but, but it, it seems a pretty it seems like a significant blow to to this theory that has held sway for, for so long. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, and it de- yeah, definitely. Yeah, let's more research. Let's get some more lines of evidence going. Let's look at some other uh, isotope ratio comparisons. Absolutely. So maybe I'm being a little yeah. bit too definitive in, in my reporting of this, but uh, yeah, it just
1: seems a little early to. to, to you know, toss out a perfectly good theory because of one piece of evidence that doesn't seem to fit.
5: Yeah, the, the, sure. So I'd, I'd have to go. i have to agree with that. So let's see. Let's see how this plays out before we, we make yeah. more definitive. But what are statements. some of the other theories? Well, there's there's the capture hypothesis, which basically says that the moon came in from outside the solar system or from other parts of the solar system and the earth just pretty much captured it and uh and that's that's really not viable because if this was a distinct body that did not commingle with the earth then the isotope um the isotopes should be obviously different which they're not and uh and also i recently discovered that the earth for this to be a viable idea the earth would need a hugely extended atmosphere to dissipate the energy of an object like the moon passing by so that that theory was you know pr- i guess fairly quickly maybe not quickly but it's pretty much uh not regarded very highly anymore for the, for these obvious reasons there's also this yeah. one was good uh the ice collision you know, if it wasn't a planetary body, it could have been a gargantuan chunk of ice that hit the Earth. The evidence would then have evaporated away. There really wouldn't be much left of it to mess with the isotope ratio. So that's, you know, I don't hear much about that theory though. I don't, I don't think it's um, held in very high regard. Uh, there's the spin theory. I remember this one as a kid uh, uh, that there was no collision, but the uh, the rapidly spinning Earth spewed chunks of itself into orbit. But the problem with that is that, uh, this would require the Earth to have, uh, too great of an initial spin that they really can't, uh, they really can't explain. So that's pretty much not, uh, not believed anymore. There's the co-formation theory that, uh, uh, that the, uh, the Earth and the Moon just, just were created at the same time. And I remember seeing animations of this, of this theory and, uh, how they're just kind of the spinning balls of, of, uh, debris and gas forming together. So they were just, Companions, twins that were just yeah. created at the same time, uh, but I think the, the the Achilles heel of this idea is that there's so little metallic iron in the moon that uh, that that theory is kind of like uh, kind of defunct. This latest theory could, could perhaps suggest another, you know, another hypothesis or another theory, uh, maybe called the collision spin theory, which is which is kind of like a, a fusion of the collision and spin ideas. And uh, the idea here is that a glancing blow from a from a planetary body, a blow that that would have the effect of causing the Earth to spin much faster, but not really. I guess it could be perhaps so such a glancing blow that there really wasn't any any major exchange of material, and this this other body just kind of, for the most part, just kind of went on its way after slightly impacting the Earth. That's if that's really even even possible, and because it increased the you know the rotational speed of the uh, spin of the Earth, that then you'd have then you kind of. Segue into the the spin theory where where this piece of the Earth kind of is extruded away uh, and becomes the Moon. So I think that's kind of like the preliminary hypothesis they might be going with that's, that would kind of kind of work with with this discovery. But of course, there's you know there's issues with this new idea as well and uh, that that need to be worked out, such as the angular momentum. You know, if the Earth had such a great angular momentum that a chunk of it could spin away, you know, where did that angular momentum go. Why how did how is it finally slowed down to what we're seeing now, you know, beyond any, the tidal breaking that we might see from the right. moon. So uh so yeah, we'll keep an eye on this and we'll see Steve. We'll see if what other scientists say about this and maybe maybe there's some fatal flaw that doesn't seem apparent to me that uh or it might just completely supplant the old giant uh, impact hypothesis and and they'll have to kind of just uh explain explain, you know, work out the details of this new hypothesis.
1: Yeah, it sounds like um there is no one good theory then, right? I mean, it's uh, no, so there's, there are significant. Pro- this you know, the impact hypothesis was the prevailing idea because it actually was the best, you know, fit to the data that we have. Now we have one piece of data that is problematic, um, but there still we're not left with any any really good replacement theory. Yeah, unless the reason why I wouldn't toss it out so quickly. Yeah, I mean, unless this
5: whole collision spin theory uh, has legs. Yeah, who who knows? I mean, that's. I mean, what would it be like? I'd like to see simulations of what a you know a real glancing blow would be like. Could it you know could you actually spin up something this you know, speed up the spin of something the size of the Earth, but but still kind of like go on your merry way and and not really interact much with, uh, the material and, you know, to such an extent that maybe there's only one or 2% of the, uh, the Thea planet, uh, mixed in with the, with the moon. And then that would, that would be a good explanation. Or maybe it's, you know, it could, it's as high as 10 or 15%, but 40%, which is what some of the latest figures I've seen is fairly significant. And, um, you'd, you'd think if you have a good enough sample, which I'm not sure how many samples I use, if you've got a good enough sample, you think you'd find some hint of those, uh, isotope discrepancies.
1: Okay, interesting. Um, Evan, I want to move from the moon to Mars.
2: Well, you're going to need a company to help you do that, Steve. I'm sorry. I don't think I could be of much service to you. Catch all balls. (laughs) (laughs) That's
3: cool. though. Wait, Before you start, Evan, do you think someday there's going to be a moving company that will help you move from planet to planet?
2: Well, of course, Planet Express. (laughs) We've seen the future. Give it about 1,000 years. We've seen the future. Futurama reference to all those who don't know. But Mars, yes, Mars is in the moon, is, Mars is in the news this week. We just, I, and when I say we, the Earth, uh, recently lapsed Mars in our revolution around the sun. So, uh, we are actually relatively close to Mars, but we're fast pulling away. This recent uh, close encounter we have every two years or so with Mars has given amateur astronomers a chance to uh, get their telescopes and point it in the direction of the red planet. And they've been capturing some uh, very good, very clear, very cool images of Mars, which you can find, you know, just about everywhere on the web. But a few photographs in particular uh, made some headlines this past week. Wayne Jasky, who is an amateur astronomer from Westchester, Pennsylvania, uh, has been photographing Mars uh, all during this time, uh, the past week, week or two, and uh, he noticed something actually rather odd in some of his photographs. There is a blob, this sort of bulge that he captured at the edge of the planet. We're not exactly sure exactly what that blob is. Lots of theories out there as to what it possibly could be, Phil Plate seems to think of all the options out there that it's most likely um, an atmospheric event, in other words, uh, clouds, some sort of high atmosphere cloud formations that have taken place on the planet, which actually has been recorded before back in the 1990 s and around two thousand and three as well we, they captured some similar pictures. Uh, of Mars in this particular phenomenon but it is rare and we still really don't have a good hand on exactly uh what it is is it a gas cloud right is it a dust cloud is it an ice cloud and how exactly might the trick of kind of light playing off that cloud be either skewing the picture so we may not actually what we're actually seeing in these photographs may not be any, the most accurate representation but these clouds based on measurements uh, would be as high as they're saying, 150 kilometers above the surface of Mars, which, for a planet with an extremely thin atmosphere, is pretty remarkable.
1: Yeah. So the, the one question is, can just a a weather phenomenon on Mars produce a cloud that high, with, with that so big and with such an altitude? And we and we really don't know. Is is the bottom line?
2: We don't know, and. The, one of the interesting things about, um, the photographs that made the news this week, obviously, is that, well, first of all, it was amateur astronomer that, uh, that took photos, although it's since been correlated with other people who have also taken photos during the course of the week. But Wayne was the first one to sort of notice this anomaly and got the community, both the amateur and professional astronomical communities, looking, taking a closer look at this and, uh, They've actually pointed the Thermal Emission Imaging Systems, which is one of the instruments on the Mars Odyssey orbiter, which is uh, NASA's one of NASA's orbiters uh, in Mars right now. So NASA has taken an interest in what Wayne has discovered, and they're starting to conduct some tests. They're going back and looking at the data that they've collected from Mars over the past few weeks, and they're trying to also try to... get a better idea of exactly what this is.
1: An ultimate theory I heard was that something smacked into Mars. This is basically the plume of a little meteor strike.
2: That is one of the theories. Um, Other theories include Aurora. Some people are suggesting that Aurora is taking place on Mars, which apparently is possible. There is uh, evidence to suggest that that is Happening on Mars, even though it's not at, the atmosphere is much thinner than Earth, right? Not maybe as electrically charged, but it does have a magnetic field unto itself, and it can, you know, reflect those charged particles in, in the form of aurora. But you know, not too many people uh, are they're kind they're kind of playing that down as one of yeah. the less likely uh, scenarios. Um, well, they could tie that directly
5: to solar activity if the, if the solar activity mat you know matches. Uh, the, you know the timing of, of this phenomenon then then I would think it would be you know more likely but
2: I wonder if anyone's done that and uh, some folks also think that this is pro- could be just a rare trick of lighting
1: it seems to be rotating with Mars though, when you look at the little quickie animation there
2: and what some people are proposing is that this is taking place in an area of Mars in which you have some of the more higher elevations of land formations mm-hmm. and what I you're see. seeing is is kind of the light hitting that crest. So there's enough,
3: there's enough wind or air movement to actually kick up some dust on Mars.
2: Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Very, large, very storms. large storms. Huge. Huge. Relative to the size of the planet.
3: I saw a picture not too long ago of a dust devil on, on the surface. Did you guys see that?
1: Yeah, those are, those are not uncommon on Mars. Yeah, Mars can get racked with planet-wide dust storms that last for months. Wow. Um, they don't uh, tell you about that in the brochure, uh, you know. Ta- oh, man, we came to uh, Mars during dust season again. <laughs> <laughs> well thanks Evan. J- now we're going to move on to a little bit in l- a little bit of lighter news or we'd like to do um some lighthearted news every week. Jay, you're going to tell us why new age hippies are flocking to a mountain in France.
3: Yeah, so there's a there's a small town in southern France called No Bougarache. offense Rebecca by the way. Bugeratch
4: Bugeretch what? what is it? Because of my French background. Yeah, right.
1: Bougarach.
3: <laughs> oui. Really? How do you pronounce, do you pronounce <laughs> that, Steve? Bougarache. Try it again. Try it again. There's a small <laughs> village in southern France called... What's it called? Bougarache, I believe. That's, That's not American. what it's called. The guy that cannot pronounce <laughs> French words at all. I'm like Bougarache. Bougarache. How about that? The, the uh, <laughs> population of about 200... And this town has the, uh, the fortune of having many myths about the, the outlying area and a mountain that, that's right around the corner from the town. The mountain is called Pic de Bugarich. Basically the, the peak
1: of that town. Right.
3: That's right. And some of the myths are the mountain has a strange man- magnetic force. Uh, it has a concealed alien base that there is access to an underground facility and quite a few other things that people were making claims about the surrounding area. And there's a growing number of people, and I, I've, I've read that anywhere between two and 20,000 people are now making their way to the town, or I think those numbers were estimates on how many people are actually there. My favorite myth, by the way, about the mountains, this
1: has nothing to do with the rest of the story we're going to tell, but there's the myth that uh, the mountain is somehow upside down. Did you hear that one, Jay? Yeah. Like the top of the mountain was sort of taken off, flipped upside down, and put back down on top of the mountain. Cause it-
3: yeah, because there's that's like a a, an area where what? I guess there's, it's flat on the top or whatever. That's, that's something that I read as well. But I did read that. My yeah. favorite myth about the mountain the- is that there was a Nazi archaeological dig that was conducted there, and I think that there was some shenanigans going on. with. Remember when the Nazis oh, yeah. were trying to, you know, there was rumors about oh, yeah, they magic and whatnot. The,
2: oh, open the up the ark and everything. Oh, yeah. yeah.
3: And their faces like melted.: They were and stuff. obsessed right. with the. Occult. <laughs> yeah. So we have.: got all got that cool. fur. We have all this wonderful mystery percolating and all that, and there's a growing number of people that are trying to get to the town and that are at the town, and you know there's turning into a little cult of people there that believe that this is one of the few places or sacred places that will be saved during the upcoming Mayan calendar predicted apocalypse.
2: I agree. It is one of the safe places, <laughs> now, <laughs> along, with the, along with the rest of the planet. Yeah.
3: Rationalists know and understand that this Mayan calendar hubbub is basically just the end of yet another 5,125-year cycle, and the end of the world is not coming, and there's no, nothing that anyone has legitimately predicted, like you know, a, a meteor coming to destroy the Earth or anything. There's nothing tangible that, that's going to do this. So, of course, it has to be aliens or magic or whatever. Now, the, now, of course, and Steve pointed out so eloquently in his blog that these people also have wrapped up the idea that they're going to be saved, which is awesome. They believe that the aliens are going to come and they're going to save them when the end of the world when the end of the world happens on March. I'm sorry, on January twenty first, December twenty first, December, December twenty first. No, I'm I'm predicting it's January twenty first. Are oh, you pushing it into two thousand thirteen? Are you? Uh, so anyway,
2: you're the, the the, <laughs> yeah, setting a lot of pilgrims over there, Jay.
3: They call the mountain the alien garage, I guess, um, with the idea that you know the aliens come here and use it as like a way station or whatever. But that for some reason, the aliens are going to come and, and they're going to be picked up. So one of the guys that's there uh, said something kind of funny that I'm going to read to you. He said, the apocalypse, we believe, is in the end of a certain world and the beginning of another. A new spiritual world. The year two thousand and twelve is the end of a cycle of suffering, and Bugarech is one of the major chakras of the Earth, a place devoted. <laughs> <Bugarich>. whatever. <laughs> Come on, I, I just, <laughs> I just, I gave up on pronunciation long ago. Um, I know. It's one of the major chakras of the Earth, a place devoted to welcoming the energies of tomorrow. I mean, this this almost sounds like it was written by Disney World. Yeah. It's blah, blah, <laughs> new age yeah, nonsense, new-
1: blah, blah. Right? I mean, it's just, it's like spin the wheel of new age words and whatnot. In fact, you could make magnetic poetry out of these new age words and just throw them up on your refrigerator and come up with something as coherent as that. <laughs>
4: you mean like the awesome skeptic word magnets that SGU is now producing? I heard about Oh, you those. mean I brought up the concept <laughs> of word magnets by coincidence? Yeah, well, that was the- truly an amazing uh, coincidence that... You brought that up, and if people were to go to skepticalrobot.com right now and go to the SGU section of the store, they will find that they can purchase, for the low, low price of $16, more than 200, 200 words that they can stick on the refrigerator and create beautiful skeptical arts. Remember, 200 words means 1,100 phonemes. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you, Bob. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh yes, you can you can create such classic skeptical phrases as to make an apple pie from scratch you must first invent the universe or science or fiction or the plural of anecdote is not evidence or bird versus monkey or or Steve debunked homeopathy. Steve plays. believes in Yeti. You can say that. Uh no, you can't say that. You can say Steve believes in Bigfoot. There you go. Yeah, you can it. make Steve believe all sorts of things uh, yes, all of our names are in it uh, as well as a Including lot of Perry, too. sGU related things Perry is in it as well yeah, yeah yeah and if you purchase a set, then you can make your best awesome skeptical magnetic literature attempt take a photo of it and email it to us info at the skepticsguide.org. And we will sort through the entries, pick the five that we like the best, which we will read on air, and the very best one will receive a free Skeptic's Guide t-shirt. Awesome. So, yeah, go ahead and buy your set at skepticalrobot.com and
3: send us a photo by May 1st. And I'm going to pick my favorite. You will win nothing, but you will get praised by me. (laughs) And isn't that enough? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Evan, we had a very interesting Who's That Noisy for last week It was a challenge to our listeners Why don't you tell us about it
2: We put the challenge to our listeners to come up with The best Skeptical words Uttered by a cartoon character In all of cartoondom <laughs> A new word I just invented And our listeners did not disappoint There were lots of entries, lots of suggestions And thank you all Everyone who did uh, play along, and uh, what we've done is put together for you the three most popular ones. Can I words, say they... my favorite
5: first? Sure, Bob. This is a quote from Dexter from Dexter's Laboratory. He said, science, the only true magic. Hmm. I love it.
2: <laughs> That's beautiful. Isn't it? Poetic. You could almost arrange that in magnetic words on your refrigerator, <laughs> but but I digress. <laughs> So I'm going to play for you the third most popular cartoon phrase uttered having to do with skepticism that was sent in by you, the listeners. Let's take a listen. That makes no sense. Sometimes you just have to believe in things, even when you can't figure them out. I will not believe in anything
4: I cannot explain.
1: That sounds like uh, My Little Pony. My Little Pony,
2: yes.
3: How kick-ass is is that, that that kids are hearing that? I think it's mostly men in their 20s. Uh, <laughs> How kick-ass but, well, <laughs> is that, that men in their 20s are hearing that?
2: It's interesting. You know, you, of, of all the cartoons, you you know, My Little Pony, I don't know, that even register with people. But within the skeptical community, it has a bit of a following, I guess, in a sense. And yeah. rightly so, because in more than one of their episodes, they sprinkle in, you know, some good thoughts, some good critical thinking notes for, for the kids and whether they and know, we, it, or whether they know it or not. We heard
1: from one of the writers. We did. He said yeah. it was very deliberate.
2: Very deliberate. And you know, thank skeptic. goodness they're doing that. So That's number three. My Little Pony is number three. Now, for number two is from one of our favorites, shows, Futurama, chock full of good skepticism all over the place. Matt Groening is definitely one of the good guys. He is definitely firmly in the skeptical camp.
4: You've got a degree in baloney.
2: Exactly. <laughs> so many. You've so got many a degree
1: points. in baloney. That's but my the, line. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Beat you to it.
2: But the one, the the one that the listeners uh, pointed out the most, or that came up most frequent, frequently, from the show Futurama, was the cl- debate that Professor Farnsworth had defending the pro-evolution stance versus Doctor Banjo, and orangutan uh, who is also a creationist. <laughs> So I'm going to go ahead and play for you the first little part, and then I'm going to follow it up with another part so you can kind of get the gist of it. And then, uh, well, you'll see what happens from there. Here we go. Why has no one found the missing link between modern humans and ancient apes? We did find it. It's called Homo erectus.
1: Then you have proven my case, sir, for no one has found the link between apes and this Homo
0: erectus. Yes, they have. It's called Homo habilis.
2: And it progresses from there, and it continues to go and it <laughs> and it goes in fact we've uh Rebecca and I are going to you know kind of uh, play out the rest of the dialogue of that scene for you Okay. Rebecca, are you going to take the role of banjo or Farnsworth? I
4: will be banjo
2: very good, and it picks up with banjo saying,
4: "Aha, but no one has found the missing link between ape and this so-called Homo habilis
2: yes, they have says Farnsworth. It's called Australopithecus Africanus."
4: Ho, ho, I've got you now.
2: And then there's Uh, a little transition to the near future. Yes, the harp music.
4: Fair enough. But where, then, is the missing link between apes and this Darwinius mass Answer me that, Professor.
2: (sighs) Well, okay, granted, that one missing link is still missing. But just because we haven't found it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Pshaw, things don't
4: exist simply because you believe in them. Thus saith the Almighty Creature in the Sky
2: <laughs> End scene. Well done, oh, Doctor Banjo. Very
4: Thank good. you. I was Dr. Banjo in my high school production of that episode
2: of Futurama, so wow. <laughs> got a lot of practice. Were you the understudy for or did you, you No from? no I was the lead. I was, oh perfect. That was me. Perfect. So fit like a glove.
4: It was my orangutan like features that made me <laughs> perfect for the part.
2: But the number one, the number one skeptical phrase uttered by a cartoon character comes to us courtesy of, of course, The Simpsons, our dear, dear friend, Lisa Simpson. And I've cut this one up into two little segments. We're going to listen to the first segment first and the second segment second. Isn't that novel? Here we go. Take it away.
1: Ah, not a bear in sight. The bear patrol must be working like a
2: charm.
0: That's specious reasoning, Dad.
2: Thank you, honey.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: now it continues. The di- The dialogue does continue right from there, which is uh, the perfect finale for this. Here we go. Take it away, Lisa.
5: By your logic, I can claim that this rock keeps tigers away.
2: Oh, how does it work?
5: It doesn't work. Uh-huh. It's just a stupid rock.
2: Uh-huh.
5: But I don't see any
4: tigers around here, do you?
2: And then Homer pauses, thinks about it, and says to Lisa, Lisa, I'd like to buy your rock.
4: <laughs> of course
2: It's <laughs> classic, classic. Yeah, oh Lisa God. was
4: the inspiration for Junior Skeptic Magazine mm-hmm. yeah,
2: There she's wasn't a Junior episode, Skeptic right? until yeah. That's right, in one of the very early episodes of The Simpsons
1: So what are we doing for this week, Evan?
2: This week, we have the classic, Who's That Noisy? I'm going to play a noise, and you, the listeners, are going to try to guess exactly what it is you are hearing Without further ado did I pronounce that right, Rebecca? I hear you're French. No, you didn't, but go <laughs> close on. enough. The J. Novella School of French <laughs> language. And it's toast.
4: <laughs> Adu yeah. is not French.
2: Here we go. Okay. Cool. Info at the skepticsguide.org is our email address. We'd love to hear from you guys on Who's That Noisy and anything else that's on your mind. And join our forums, sguforums.com. And our moderators do an awesome job of keeping that site up, running, and uh, squeaky clean for your entertainment. So uh, hats off to all of them. Good luck, everyone.
1: Great. Thanks, Evan. Well, we have a great interview with James Randy, so let's go to that now. We are joined once again by James Randy. Randy, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide.
0: Hey, it's been a while, Steve.
1: Yeah, you're, you're you've been traveling quite a bit. You're you're quite in demand these days.
0: Well, a moving target is harder to hit, Yeah,
1: you're <laughs> in. A, in fact, you're in California right now, isn't that
0: correct? I am in California as we speak, ladies and gentlemen, in Los Angeles. Yet,
1: what are you doing out there?
0: All all kinds of things. I've, I've been doing interviews all afternoon and. Uh, for everybody you can imagine. Uh, I'm I'm spending a lot of time with D.J. Grothier, our president, of course, and it's valuable to have uh, eye-to-eye relationships like that with them, and we get a lot more accomplished that way.
1: So we're going to talk in a second about uh, two upcoming conferences that we're, we're going to be seeing you at, Nexus and then, of course, TAM. But mm-hmm. before that, um, I understand that you gave away the Pegasus Awards recently. Can you tell us about that?
0: Of course, I'd be happy to, to tell you about that. Now, you know there are several categories. We have five categories this particular year. Uh, this, this is very interesting to me, at least. Uh, th- this is the April 1st, of course. So th- I don't know why we chose April 1st. It was just chance, of course, as you can imagine. The uh, Pegasus Awards are given every year by the JRF uh, to highlight parapsychological, paranormal, or psychic uh, fakers and And we think they do so much harm to society that uh, we really want to call attention to them. So here are the official announcements. First of all, for the scientists uh, who did the silliest thing uh, this past year, to Daryl Bem, that's B-E-M. It it always reminds me of a bug-eyed monster because in science fiction, a Bem is a bug-eyed monster. And uh, I I have no idea what Mr. (laughs) Bem, Dr. Bem looks like at all. But it was the stuff that he did was really shoddy research, and it has been discredited uh, by. uh, Well, let me see. We've got Richard Wiseman, and uh, we have, of course, Steve Novella. I've heard of him. Have you heard of him? Yes. Occasionally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Steve, you did a very good job on that, by the way. And, uh, uh, of course, we've got uh, all kinds of friends all over the world who are scientists and are really qualified to criticize this sort of thing, Bem used all kinds of strange paradigms. Did he not, Steve?
1: Yeah, well, he, you know, it's an interesting idea, sort of reversing the direction of standard psychological studies to see how it works. But he, he came up with these barely significant little signals, uh, and there's every indication that he probably massaged the data a little bit. It's not really surviving replication. You know, like Chris French, Richard Wiseman, and others have tried to replicate it, and all with mm-hmm. negative results. And also, in Bem's own book on psychology, he he, discuss, he discussed how you could massage the data and get, get a signal out of the noise, basically, really sort of giving away the game.
0: And Steve, I would say as well... Uh, you use the term massage the data. Also, there's data selection. If you if you do enough experiments, you're going to find some that appear to be significant. And if you just ignore all the rest of them and only publish the ones that seem to have some positive results, uh, that's massaging data. Yeah, well. it, it's just it's shameless. I I am not a scientist, but I know how these things are done. Magicians do it all the time. (laughs) You know, on on stage, they show you where they're right, and they show you where it seems to have worked, but they don't show you when it doesn't work.
1: It's a bit of the magician's choice. It is. It is indeed. It
0: is indeed, yes. Anyway, um, there's another, um, uh, (laughs) the the one that, that I find most important to me, personally, is funding. The uh, the silliest funding done for a really ridiculous cause. And Syracuse University, they, they really have to be ashamed of themselves. They are still promoting and funding as well the facilitated communication yeah. uh, idea. And facilitated communication, as you gentlemen know, and as we all know, and I think the rest of the world is getting to know, is just such a farce. It's such a cruel, cruel farce where parents... Um, of of, uh, autistic children are very encouraged by getting the false belief, and it is a totally false belief, that their children are able to communicate with them. The messages are always, I love you, mommy dear, kind of thing, uh, which children would give you, of course, and that's what they expect, and that's what they like, and they choose to believe it, even though the child is not looking at a keyboard that's perched in front of it It can be looking at the floor, it can be singing or screaming for food or whatever, but they have a facilitator there. That's an adult that holds the child's hand and and makes a, a, a pointer finger out of it and then presses the keys on the keyboard. And the facilitator has his or her, usually her, eyes glued to the screen and to the keyboard while the child is not even looking. And they want people to believe that the child is originating the data, and the child is not originating the data. This is a cruel farce, and yet Syracuse University makes huge sums of money every year, mostly from parents, uh, wealthy parents of autistic children uh, who think that their children are talking to them. This is a terrible farce, but Syracuse University does it for the money.
1: They definitely need to be singled out. You're right. Absolutely, universities should be ashamed of themselves. This has been, you know, it's it was dubious from the get go, but it's it's been absolutely de- uh, demonstrated that it's that it's fake. That it's as you say, it's the facilitators who are doing the communication. Right. It's not just autism, by the way, just to clarify. It's you know any any child or or adult even that has difficulty communicating. Of course, yes. and in fact, what I what I discovered in the last few years is that you know the, the younger um, clinicians, physicians, et cetera. You went through training, came up after the whole facilitated communication thing mm-hmm. in the late '80s and early '90s. Had no idea what it was, and they're getting duped by it all over again. A whole new generation of people are getting fooled by it, and you know it's up to us to point out. It's like, nope, we that twenty years ago that was all completely debunked. You know, just check the literature.
0: We will all admit, of course, uh, with with no hesitation at all, that there's nothing as sad as uh, an autistic child who can't communicate with the world now there are all different degrees of it too i saw all kinds of degrees of it uh, in my career of investigating this sort of thing and i have given tests definitive tests uh, to these so-called facilitators and what they have the child typing out all of a sudden is i don't like this man from florida do you tell him to go back because you and me uh we we have dotty we have an arrangement together we are are, our soulmates and the children are talking about all kinds of technical terms. I yeah. need a new hypothalamus. That's from an eight-year-old boy saying to the facilitator, I need a new help- hypothalamus. Come on. People can only believe a certain amount about this sort of thing, but Syracuse University continues to rake it in.
1: I agree. They definitely get my vote. Jay, do you have a comment you wanted to make?
3: Yeah, Randy, you mentioned before that they're saying uh, that the children are are communicating through the facilitated communication. That they, I love you, mom and dad, and things like that. But it even gets a lot more. I, I don't know how to put it other than ridiculous. And that's they'll have these these children writing um, poetry and uh, coming up with very profound thoughts and statements that.
0: Now I even have examples that I'm putting in my my next book, A Magician in the Laboratory, uh, a whole chapter on this because. There are actually, can you believe this? They've got kids going to college with their mothers sitting beside them as facilitators.
1: And even worse than that, in my opinion, are cases in which children, through facilitated communication, accuse oh. an estranged husband of sexual abuse. Oh, yes. Yes, and, that, that, and that is the worst, yes. Yeah, that's spectral evidence. I mean, that's that's like a witch hunt. That's terrible.
0: So uh, they get our... our uh, Pegasus Award, uh, Syracuse University. I hope you're happy with the money that you're bringing in for the university. Be happy with it. And then, <laughs> and then for the media. Oh boy, the Learning Channel. What a misnamed <laughs> channel. This is ridiculous. They have such shows that promote promote belief in paranormal falderal. They used to have more science, of course, and they have our friends, the Mythbusters, on their sister network, the Discovery Channel, which is not really very discovering either but they also have shows like the long island medium just mm-hmm. utter dangerous nonsense have you seen that show
1: I've, I've not managed to see it yet i've seen the promos for it
0: yeah well the the promos are bad enough so you know enough <laughs> to avoid it because it's just a silly woman with a silly voice uh, saying silly things of course but they see that there's money in it and then here's another category uh, for the pegasus prize is for the performer, and the performer of this year for the Pegasus Prize is, oh, Teresa Caputo, because she is the Long Island medium. Isn't that mm-hmm. strange? I mean, this is a double honor for them. I'm sure they're very proud of it. And then the final the final Pegasus Prize this year is the Pegasus Prize awarded for refusal to face reality, and we give this with great honors and great fanfare to, ta-da, James Van Prague. He's oh, still we go. peddling his nonsense, even after we've exposed him time and time again. As you know, guys, a DJ and a team of our volunteers even brought a zombie group to one of his spirit circles. It's a big viral video right now and can be looked up on YouTube. And it got great press. But rather than just admitting how much of his stuff is utter nonsense, it all is utter nonsense. He keeps plugging away. So he is refusing to face reality. But he knows what he's doing, fellas. He knows what he's doing because he knows that there are people out there. No amount of evidence will ever talk them out of their belief in these things. And James Brown Pog knows that that's a good enough uh, percentage of the American and other parts of the world public, and he can benefit from that, and he'll continue to make a handsome living. So those are the Pegasus Awards. For 2012,
1: <laughs> <laughs> all deserving. Well, let's turn to the to the conferences that you that we'll be seeing you at. The next one coming up, April 21st and 22nd, is Nexus, uh, held in New York City. Uh, and you've been you've been to this conference before, and we're oh, yes. always happy to have you back.
0: What are you going to be doing for us? Well, Michael Feldman, of course, is. Uh, the the guy that I look at as being behind all this, he's a great organizer. Uh, I'm I'm giving a talk, but I want to keep it a bit of a surprise because it's something that's from my my next book, The Magician in the okay. Laboratory. I keep plugging this up, and I think that um, I I expect that everyone's going to buy several copies of it, of course. Oh, several. But, yeah. and, and by the way, and uh, well, to everyone involved here, I must say that uh, it's going to go uh, out digitally first on uh, on, on Kindle or. Whatever they've got plans yeah. for, it. I don't know about the publication uh, before it goes into actual print. So forests will be spared. I I hope a lot of forests will be spared, but uh, I, it's a, it's quite a book. I'll tell you, it's quite a book. This is stuff I've saved up for years and I wanted to say for a long, long time.
1: So you're going to give, be giving us some secret lecture based upon your upcoming book. Yeah,
0: I'm going to take some excerpts out of it, and I think I I think I have some. Very special surprises for the Nexus group, and uh, so I hope they're looking forward to it. That's I certainly awesome. am looking forward to being there, of course. Great.
1: And you'll be joining us on stage for the live recording of the SGU as well. And, That's and right. And would love to have you on. Uh, and Jay, there's also um, going to be a bit of a, of a raffle involving Randy. Tell us about that.
3: Okay, so we decided to do something cool this year. We wanted to uh, give someone the chance. Well, basically anybody that buys a ticket at Nexus will be entered into a drawing. And what's going to happen is we're going to announce the winner on Saturday during the conference, and the winner gets the following. The winner gets to go to the speaker dinner for free on Saturday night. That's, that's worth $100. And also, something that you can't put a price on, the winner will get to sit right next to Randy at his table, have an entire meal with him, and you know which means you're going to get to talk to Randy and listen to him tell stories. And I'm just trust me, I've done this many times, and Randy... Uh, very rarely repeats himself, and the stories are amazing.
0: And some of the stories are true too.
3: That's and that's <laughs> the good part. And then and then finally, um, the thing that I I think everyone can appreciate, Randy is also going to do a magic trick right right there for that person at some random moment during the meal. And I've also seen Randy do quite a few magic tricks, and it's always, always fascinating and always fun. And, and Randy is, the, the, in my opinion, one of my favorite entertainers. So don't miss out. Um, and like I said, all you got to do is buy a ticket. You're going to be automatically entered, and we'll do the drawing at some point during Saturday.
1: Awesome. Yeah, we're, de- yeah, we're definitely looking forward to seeing you again. And then, of course, we have TAM10 or TAM2012 or Tam X. What are you guys calling it this year?
0: I, I think we're just calling it TAM-10, 10, 10, but I, I would have liked to call it TAM-X. But there aren't too many ancient Romans around to appreciate that, you see. Well, I
3: actually, I was talking to George Rabb not too long ago because we did a project together. And George told me that, that I think from DJ that they want to call it TAM-2012 to
0: clarify things, right? I believe that's what they're doing, yes.
3: But I actually, I really love the the Tam X idea. There's a lot of jokes that, if you if you think about it, there's some funny things that they could have done for the graphics and all that for it. But I'm sure. Now, if you remember last year, I don't know if everyone was as blown away as I was by the graphics that that Tam
0: came up with. Like the, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. We uh, we had a company do that for us. And I, I uh, DJ, are we having the same company do the graphics for for Tam this year? Uh, yeah. It's not finalized yet, uh, DJ says, uh, from the coach across the room, um, which is his usual stance. He, he handles me very <laughs> offhandedly. He doesn't really pay attention to what I say. But, <laughs> but uh, yes, it was great, wasn't it? And we had a lot of people asking for second copies of the programs and such. It was very, very well done. I was very happy about that.
3: Yeah, me too. I was hoping that they came up with something as interesting as last year. I mean, I don't know how. Can you top the. The throwback, uh, like 1940s sci-fi, you know, the the old style rockets and the you know the the funny spacesuits and everything. I mean, I loved it.
0: Well, they wanted to do a thing on my naked dance on fire, but I didn't want to feature that.
1: Is that the surprise? <laughs> your naked dance on fire?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I I I'm finding my the enthusiasm for the audience seeing that has has been waning in recent years. I <laughs> have no idea why. <laughs> Well, you know, we have well, we have the usual great lineup. I don't want to spoil it all for you, but uh, we've got uh, Lawrence Krauss, for example. Uh, have you ever heard Lawrence Krauss speak? Uh, oh yeah, he's absolutely. Great. Yeah, he's awesome. He's he's. We a had him on our show. Yeah. Yeah, I was just with him a few days ago, as a matter of fact. And Brian Dunning uh, will be uh, speaking as well. Uh, and Penn and Teller. Oh, get this now. You know how great Penn and Teller are for uh, with us. They they really are astonishing. they they, they go all out and. Uh, we're going to throw, uh, pardon me, Penn Gillette is going to throw an even bigger rock and roll donuts and bacon party, that's what he called it, than he did last year, and all attendees of TAM are invited for free, of course. Isn't that great? Oh, awesome. And this is our 10th, I mean, our 10th in Las Vegas. Now, we've had a a few other ones. We had a 5.5 one, for example. I don't know how that worked out, but it worked well. No, we got lots of people. But the attendance last year were well, 1,652 people. We're going to have to build our own casino next year.
3: Yeah, I would, I would imagine with the, the astounding growth that TAM has had, like I, I can't imagine us fitting in that room anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I, now I, I got to tell you this too, that DJ Grothy, our amazing president, not too many things are amazing in my estimation. I'm one and DJ is another. Uh, he's uh, negotiated incredibly affordable even cheaper than last year rate right, to attend TAM and we're keeping the registration the same as last year we're not raising the prices even though our costs have gone out gone up or I mean, substantially this is four full days of skepticism and science big evening shows workshops lots of social activity and parties i can't wait to get there
1: all right randy is there anything else you want to you want us to ask you about before we let you go
0: no i i think not uh steve uh, but uh, hey uh, I, I've got to express this thought, too, that, Steve, your contributions to TAM and to the JRF in general have been quite substantial, and I want to thank you for your support and your participation. It's very good of you, and we uh, are happy to have you aboard, as we say. And, well, uh, we, we, we can't get many people that are that valuable and that knowledgeable, but uh, remember, get out to TAM, that is, get registered for going out to TAM, as early as you can, because we're going to fill up this year. I'm absolutely sure of it. Get your ass to TAM.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Randy. Thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate it. It's definitely an honor working for the JREF and working with all of you guys. And we look forward to seeing you at Nexus in April, and we look forward to seeing you at TAM in Las Vegas in July.
0: Okay. Looking forward to it with great enthusiasm.
3: All right. Thanks again, Randy. Good night. Good night. See you soon, Randy. Uh, a couple of more Nexus announcements while we're at it. I have a few more cool things to let our listeners know. First, uh, single-day sales are going to open next week, and those are going to be at $85 each for Saturday and $85 for Sunday. Um, we only have a limited number of those single-day tickets, so if you want one, I suggest you just jump on and make the purchase as soon as possible. Um, and yeah, we had a lot of people asking us about
1: single-day tickets. They can't make the whole weekend, but they want to come, so we, we opened some up uh, to accommodate those requests, but I do expect that they're going to go pretty quickly.
3: So, Steve, we have a new nighttime event that I recommend you go to. It's called the Story Collider event, and that's happening on Friday, April 20th at 8 p.m. And the idea of this is Brian is going to be asking a certain number of speakers that are going to attend the conference to come up and tell a a short, you know, maybe 10-minute story. This event is run by Brian Wecht, and what he does is he gets people to come up and give a a 10-minute story that's based on something to do with science, and the list of people are, um, I'm actually doing it, which I'm incredibly excited to do it. DJ is going to be there, Jamie, Hai Ting, uh, Brian will actually be, be doing it, and Rebecca and Paige. Who, uh, If you don't know who Paige is, Paige is the president of the New York City Skeptics. So there's a two-thirds discount for Nexus attendees who will have a code mail to them very soon. And if you're a member of the NES and you need, to, you need your discount code for this or for the overall Nexus event, then e- uh, email us. To make it simple, please just email us at info at the dot org with the subject line Nexus Code.
2: It's time for Science or
0: Fiction.
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Yep. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Item number one, paleontologists demonstrate that the arrangement of bones in fossil aquatic dinosaurs is likely the result of the dinosaur carcasses exploding after death. Item number two, a new study indicates that adults learning a second language can achieve native like language processing, which can improve even after a period of no exposure. And item number three, scientists have demonstrated the existence of a new layer of genetic information in genes previously thought to be redundant.
2: Evan, go first. The arrangement of bones in fossil aquatic dinosaurs is likely the result of the dinosaur carcasses exploding after death. Is it a problem that I've never heard of this before? Or I don't think so. Should I be? It's a problem for you. Come back to it. Uh, the next one: the study indicates adults learning a second language. Well, this kind of flies in the face of things we've talked about before and things I've looked at about on the internet. The younger brain the child's brain still forming certain centers still very active having to do with language and adults have a natural hindrance towards that a barrier essentially the the did we call it the plasticity of the brain if i recall it becomes uh less so in the adult which is why but this seems to fly in the face of that which is fascinating for me i'm going to go into the last one where the scientists demonstrated the existence of a new layer of genetic information in genes previously thought to be redundant. I think of the three, this is the one that might make the most sense to me, actually. Let's see. Exploding carcasses or language? I'll go with my instincts simply and say that the adults learning the second language, achieving native-like language processing. I'm going to say that one's the fiction.
1: Okay,
5: Bob. Start with three new layer of genetic information in genes thought to be redundant that's really cool a new layer of genetic information that's that's fantastic i really hope that's true but yeah i could see something about redundant codons that uh can somehow uh influence gene expression in some way sure oh yeah the uh, the adults learning a second language yeah kids have much more facility learning languages definitely they but it's not just that they could learn it in a way that adults can't possibly do it i th- I think it's more that they could just learn it with much more facility much more quickly and and i think often uh accent free so this one this one kind of makes sense to me the improvement after a period of time of no exposure sure i mean i could see the brain kind of like kind of reorganizing and, and consolidating itself during the no exposure period which could actually make it more more uh, reflexive and uh requiring less you know more efficient to actually think in that other language so that, that kind of makes sense to me as well too the arrangement of bones, yeah I mean this is obviously' exploding after death it's got to be because of the um the creation of the uh the post mortem gases that the bacteria create but the uh the arrangement of bones in fossil aquatic dinosaurs, something about that one um before that happened, I mean wouldn't they be just torn apart by by uh by predators anyway um and you know would there actually be you know places in the body where the gases can accumulate to, to such an extent before they're just kind of ripped apart? Uh, by whatever I mean, it would take. I think it would take a, long, a while before, a little while before um, the gases would accumulate so much. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna say that one is
3: fiction. Okay, Jay. I have heard of of large uh, mammals like whales exploding uh, because of gas buildup. I've never heard of dinosaurs exploding. You know, so I'm listening to what Bob was saying. You know, the thing that seems strange to me in this one is that. They were saying about the arrangement of the bones. Aquatic dinosaurs were exploding. And that seems kind of strange to me, if you think that if they exploded, then wouldn't the bones like drift away apart from each other and stuff? You know, I'm like, I'm just picturing like what it would happen if something that was on the surface of the water or that got beached, exploded or whatever, and like, it just seems kind of weird to me. And I'm and then I listen to what Bob said. That makes sense. Um, the one about the adults. Learning a second language, you know, that's, that's news to me. If that's, that's true, that's pretty interesting. I mean, you always heard that you can't learn languages later on in life. In this situation, we're saying that it's not just them learning the language, but they're learning it with a native-like language processing. And maybe the word processing is an indicator of, you know, maybe it's not that you're learning it as well as a native could, but there's certain elements of the processing in the brain that could achieve that level or whatever. I think that might be the, the tricky thing there. And then scientists at the last one have demonstrated the the new layers of, of information. I have no reason to doubt that. I think it's if that's true, that's fascinating, and I can't wait to hear about it. And I just can't really shoot any holes in that. So it's between it's between the exploding dinosaurs, the aquatic explosions, and then we have the language thing. So I think at this point, we're in GWB. Okay, and Rebecca.
4: Yeah, for me, it's between. The exploding dinosaurs in the new language, I think both are pretty out there. Um, but the exploding dinosaurs, like Jay said, we know of whales and whatnot exploding, but these are animals that are, have been beached. And the way this is written makes me feel like it's some, it's suggesting that it's a more common occurrence for aquatic, dead aquatic animals. And I think that an animal that dies in the water has a very, low chance of exploding due to, as Bob sort of hinted at due to the vast amount of predators picking at it. But also when you're in water, there's a lot more wear and tear on a corpse than when it's exposed to the air. So you're constantly having little bits of it washed away and um, you know, there's more bacteria and, and things like that, I imagine. So I would think that exploding aquatic dinosaurs would be pretty rare so I'm going to say that that one's the fiction.
1: Okay. So you all agree in the third one. So we'll start there. Scientists have demonstrated the existence of a new layer of genetic information in genes previously thought to be redundant. You all think that one is science, and that one is science. Ooh. That one is science.
2: Very cool. Cool. Science.
1: cool. Yeah, this this wasn't totally new. It's kind of presented that way, but this but i 've heard you know other studies suggesting this before as well, so essentially you know there are um, often different copies of the same gene, and thinking for a long time was that the extra copies, especially if they produce an identical protein there's no you know sometimes there's you know obviously a gene was duplicated, but there are slight differences in the two copies, and sometimes you know those duplicated genes actually go on to evolve to be. Have a completely different purpose, and you know we could demonstrate branching descent uh, within genes. But anyway, uh, there are sometimes we have duplicate copies of genes where the the end, even though there are mutations, there is a different code. The code still results in the same sequence of amino acids, the same exact protein. And the thinking was, okay, there was a duplication, and that extra copy is completely redundant. However, what uh, new researchers showed is that those other copies actually can have a dramatic effect on the amount of protein that is produced by a cell. So, Bob, you're correct. It does affect the gene expression. And, in, in fact, this is a, probably an important mechanism of regulating ribosomal activity. Ribosomes are the organelles that convert you know genes into proteins. They uh, use a technique called ribosome profiling, which uh, allows them to see... How much the law. activity, essentially, each ribosome and each, each gene is having. Uh, okay, let's go back to number two. A new study indicates that adults learning a second language can achieve native-like language processing, which can improve even after a period of no exposure. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is science. Science. Aha. Sorry, Evan. Hi.
2: I gotta go relearn all about this whole language thing now. Yeah, I mean, oh, I, I was
1: hoping to get a lot of people on this one. Evan, your thinking was was reasonable. Children do have an easier time learning languages than adults, but there's a critical difference, though, and that is, I think, Bob, maybe you hit upon this. Children have a much easier time. They have a window of opportunity where they could learn the phonemes, the different, you know, sounds that make up a language. And it becomes very difficult to overcome that it really depends on what language you're trying to go to and from you know there are sometimes you know, after a certain age um, there may be subtle distinctions in a, in a foreign language that your brain just can't distinguish but this was this is actually not talking about distinguishing different phonemes but right. grammar about the way the brain processes the, the language syntax or the language grammar and this is totally learnable uh, you could learn it you know, completely learn and think in the syntax of a language as an adult. But actually what the study was looking at was the difference between classroom learning of a language and immersive learning. Mm. Ironically, I mean, people, would you know, the naive sense would be, well, immersive learning is better. But actually up to this point, studies have shown that classroom learning of a language is, produces superior results. However, the weakness in in that evidence is that um, it may be it helps people perform better on tests, but not necessarily to be more fluent. Yeah. And also, they were relatively short-term. So we don't know if it really – there's long-term advantages. So people were still holding out for the notion that immersive just seems better. I mean, I don't, you know, the, the data is sort of pointing towards classroom being superior, but maybe immerse, immersion in a language is better. So this was actually looking at those two different ways of learning. And what they found is that immersive learning does produce – Better native like processing of the language than does classroom learning. They both produce it, but the immersive learning a little bit faster, a little bit more. They also then uh, followed up the study by bringing students back five months later, you have know, the subjects back, after they hadn't been exposed to the language, and they both groups were even better than, than they were five months earlier, as if, as you said, Bob, I don't know if you read the study or not, but they, they think they were probably consolidating what they had learned, and the, therefore the brain was able to, to process the language even better. Uh, do you know how they, are, they know for sure that in those five months, their subjects were not exposed to the language that they were taught? They, put they were the astronauts. In the Monroe box, astronaut, hope.
3: They bribed them with chocolate.
1: It was a made-up language. Oh, What a great awesome. idea. Ah, and it was, cool.
3: Wait,
5: that's kind of annoying. They also made
1: it up for another <laughs> reason because the, the, the part of the weakness of the earlier data was that it was short-term, but it takes so long to learn a language. They didn't know how it really related. So they made up a very simple language so that they could teach somebody, they could teach the subjects this, this uh, made-up language very quickly. So let's go to number one. Paleontologists demonstrate that the arrangement of bones in fossil aquatic dinosaurs is likely the result of the dinosaur carcasses exploding after death. And that obviously is the fiction. I didn't get you guys with exploding obviously. dinosaurs. I thought you I would know, go it's, it's, for that. It, just it it's sounded cool. fishy
3: to me from the beginning, it is Steve. A great,
1: uh-huh.
3: It's a great
4: idea. Fish. I'm sad that it's not true. Actually. Wait,
3: but whales explode. Yeah, actually,
1: until this recent study that I am about to talk about, the the notion that it, actually they weren't dinosaurs, they were aquatic reptiles that were existed at the time of the dinosaurs. But since this was was the fiction, I could just say whatever I want. But um, like ichthyosaurs, right? So the belief was they were exploding. That was actually the prevailing theory. The new evidence actually contradicts that. It's such a great theory. Some fossils, the exploding di- quote-unquote dinosaur, <laughs> there. So some fossils of like ichthyosaurs were were of pregnant females, and the fetal bones were sp- strewn about a little bit, and they and they couldn't figure out how that might have happened. And so one hypothesis, maybe the carcass exploded after death because of the buildup of the gases of decomposition, as Bob was saying. What the new analysis showed is that um, the gas buildup would not be produce sufficient force to cause the carcasses to explode. So it contradicts that hypothesis. The notion that the, the, the creatures would be eaten and stuff, I don't know how valid that reasoning is because that's true of pretty much of anything. Most animals that die get scavenged and eaten and whatnot. Um, so it's always a rare event that a, that a carcass finds itself in, in an environment where – it's going to be fossilized, where it's going to be protected from the, the either the, the environment or or scavengers or whatever that would that would destroy it before it has a chance to get buried essentially and and fossilized. So the paleontologists were trying to come up with scenarios in which an ichthyosaur would the carcass would survive the environment uh, would not just you know be rotted away by by the water or or be eaten by scavengers long enough um that it could sink down you know into the sediment but still produce this uh spread of the of the bones that they were they were finding and that's why they came up with the exploding hypothesis but that hasn't panned out in this latest research now they think that the uh just the the uh water currents after the body decayed to the point where it was essentially open that the currents could have washed the fetuses away a little bit just a little distance away that's why they weren't found you know, inside the uh, the mother.
2: Looks like the scientist said, look at the
1: bones.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so Jay, you have a quote for us this week? I have a quote sent in from a listener named Tom Hale and I'd like to thank everyone who does send me in these awesome quotes. This quote was written by a man named Robert Ingersoll and does anybody know who Robert was? Oh yeah, of course. I used to. Please. He was one of the greatest
4: free thinkers
3: yeah. ever. That's right. He's a cool guy. He was a Civil War Veteran, American political leader, an orator during the golden age of free thought, and he was also noted for his broad range of cultural and his defense of agnosticism. He was nicknamed the Great Agnostic, mm-hmm. which I thought was very cool. Cool. And the quote is Fear believes, courage doubts, fear falls upon the earth and prays, courage stands erect and thinks. Fear is barbarism, courage is civilization. Fear believes in witchcraft, in devils, and in ghosts. Fear is religion. Courage is science. Robert Ingersoll.
1: Awesome.
4: Robert Ingersoll was new atheist before it was cool to be new atheist.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jay. Um, So, Steve, you know who that kid Ethan Brown is? Oh, yeah. Ethan's the twelve-year-old who's going to be presenting at Nexus coming up on April twenty-one and twenty-two, and Ethan does a he's a he does a math sh- magic show. I think they call him a mathematician, or what a mathematician, a math a magician he is a mathematician and he does math magic and he's awesome. He's done a lot of little things for me. You know, I've gone out to breakfast with Chris and his family a number of times and, you know, Ethan is always there ready to go. He's got his cards with him and uh it's really cool. I really I really like what he does and it, it does a lot of really cool things to inspire other people and, and especially other kids to uh, you know not be afraid of math and and learn it and actually have fun with it, which is you know, if you can have fun with math, you can have fun with anything. Right. Well, at Nexus, Ethan is going to be doing a mental math show, and he's actually performs this show all over the country, and he's going to be doing something in Atlanta, St. Louis, New Jersey, as well as Nexus just in the next few months. So here's the deal. Ethan is doing something I think is very interesting to raise money for his hometown library. We've talked about the number tau on the show before. Remember that, Steve? Yep, the Golden Ratio. Yeah, so it's considered an irrational number, which means it goes on forever. And Ethan is going to try to recite 2,000 digits of this number from memory in front of two judges. And he's raising money by asking people to pledge some money for every digit he gets correct. So basically, basically, if he gets all 2,000 digits and you pledge one penny per digit, you end up paying $20. Two cents would be $40, and you can do the math from there. You know, it's also good to point out that that efforts like this will be supported by the skeptical community. You know, it's not just something fun to do, but it is about awareness. It is about getting people involved and excited about learning, and especially about science and critical thinking and math. So here's the details. You go to www.tau2000.com and click on the button to support the event and fill out the pledge form right online. It takes about 20 seconds to do the whole thing. And on the forum, it's going to ask you how you heard about the event. Type in SGU. Um, So we're going to be giving away three T-shirts signed by the entire SGU crew to three lucky people who help out. The first T-shirt goes to whoever sends in the most money, whoever ends up donating the most money. So don't be afraid to be generous if you can swing it. And if you can't afford a lot, no problem. The second two are just going to go randomly. Well, thank you for joining me, everyone. My pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Absolutely.
1: And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe.
2: The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback,
4: please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info
2: at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.